So we're back in the book of Revelation again, and um, the passage today, Revelation chapter 2, um, I realized that I preached this exact same passage here on August the 28th of 2018, so you're not even a year and a half removed, but I promise if you have that outline, this one is different. Now, I, I will let you know, uh, it is not a new message per se from the book of Revelation because God's truth has been revealed, but we're looking at it at a different, little bit different angle. So we're going to kind of come in and, and see in the context of all of the book of Revelation. Previously, we looked at this passage in the context of the book of Ephesians and what was going on with the church at Ephesus. But we're going to see here in just a second that Jesus is addressing this church in a different way. And so I want to remind you, we had uh, several adults come Wednesday night. Um, If this raises questions, if there's something that you want to like talk about a little bit more, Wednesday night, we're taking the same passage. We're going to break it down a little bit differently. This week, we're going to focus on just kind of an overview of their seven letters to seven churches in this chapter two and chapter three. So we're going to kind of take that approach. But we had some good discussion and some questions that were raised as people heard, uh, not me, but heard what was in the passage, heard the, the, the uh, scripture because it's the scripture that instructs our hearts. But Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 2. If you're joining with us, if you're visiting with us, I do want to welcome you and thank you for being here. We are uh, in week three of a 40-week journey through the book of Revelation, and it is a journey where we're going to ask a lot of questions and realistically, we're not going to have every one of our questions answered because God does not give us all of the answers, but he gives us hope. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the uh, answer to the final test. Jesus wins. Okay. So the book of Revelation ends with Jesus winning. And that is awesome because it gives us hope today for everything that we see taking place in the world, whether good or bad. So if you've got your place in Revelation, let me invite you, if you're able, to stand and the reverence of reading God's word as we look at chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 this morning. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to John on Patmos and he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, but they are not. You have found them to be false. You have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. But you do have this. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we look at your word and we rejoice at the fact that we have a true and living God who would give us his word, who would give us what we call holy scripture. But God, it's, 
It's your heart revealed to us in written form, in words that we can understand, words that we can, that we can wrap our mind around. So Lord, we ask you today that this living, active, two-edged sword, that it would pierce our heart, that it would pierce our soul, that it would compel us to stand firm for who you are, our God, our King, Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we embrace a world that does not understand. But Lord, not just so that we can say we're right, but because we love you, because we love your son, because we love the gospel. Father, we love you. Give us ears to hear this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever known anybody to do the right thing for the wrong reasons? Somebody that, that makes that moral choice, but... Really not because their heart is actually in it. Uh, we see this all the time as parents, right? Especially if you have a parent of more than one child. You have one child who wants to tell on brother or sister. Not because what brother or sister was doing uh, was purely wrong, but because they want brother or sister to be in trouble, right? It's the right thing to expose what's wrong, but the motivation, the heart behind it is not actually there. This is what's going on in the church in Ephesus. As we taught last week, looking at the image of Christ Jesus presented to us in John chapter 1, we see this Christ, this figure, the one who was dead, buried, raised again, and he's standing there and John sees him. And John says that I see this one, the son of man, and he's standing among seven golden lampstands and in his hand are seven stars. We talked about what these were, the seven churches that we look at in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, this past Wednesday night as we looked at a, a map, we'll talk a little bit more about this this coming week, um, of where these churches are located, it was a major, major trade route there in Asia Minor in, in, in what is Western Turkey today. So starting with Ephesus on the coast, one could come and follow this trade route and go through and hit each one of these cities in order. And Jesus says, I'm here among you and I know what's going on. And furthermore, he says, I'm holding the pastors, the angels of these churches in my hand. There's this nearness and this proximity of Christ Jesus to his people. Christ Jesus who said, I am with you and I will never forsake you. And that's hope for us today. We have a Christ Jesus, we have a Lord that has promised that he would never forsake us. Even in days where it seems like it's dim and dark and you don't know what from down, Christ Jesus has not forsaken you. But we get into the church in Ephesus and we notice a couple of things that Jesus addresses in this passage. And the first thing is that Jesus notes the great work that is taking place in Ephesus. Notice with me what he says. I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is what I say. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. Man, this church is doing some great things and Jesus wants them to know, I see what's going on. 
It's not lost on me. Remember, I'm the one, John presented in, in chapter one. He's the one with the eyes ablaze, of eyes of flame of fire. Everything is exposed by Christ Jesus. Everything we want to hide, Christ Jesus uncovers. Christ Jesus sees. And that's not because Jesus is being mean. It's because Jesus loves us. Jesus wants something better and greater for us. So he will expose the wickedness. He will expose the unrighteousness. He will expose what is broken so that he himself can offer what is true. And he says, I'm looking at your church. Ooh, man, that's a, that's a scary thought, right? Jesus is looking at your church and seeing everything that is going on. Can I tell you the truth for just a second? As a Southern Baptist pastor, and what's come to light in the last year and a half about things that some people in our convention, churches that we're associated with have hidden, that terrifies me. And I believe it is an act of grace and mercy that it has come to light so that it can be corrected, so that lives that have been broken and hurt and afflicted can be restored. And Jesus says, I see what's going on. And look at this. It's all good things. Notice he doesn't say anything thing bad about what Ephesus is doing. He says, I see your work. Notice with me, the first is that this church was committed to hard work. Man, this was a hard work in church. He uses these describing words. He says, I know your deeds and your toil. Man, this is a hard work in church. They're not letting, waiting for somebody else to pick up the slack. If there's somebody that, if, they, if there's a diaper that needs to be changed, they've got a line of people waiting to change that diaper. If there is a meal to be served, they've got a line of people waiting to serve that meal. If there's trash to be taken out, there's a line of people to be uh, taking out that trash. If they're going to go out and knock on doors in their community, they've got all the church involved. It's not just five or six, it's everybody. They are working hard. Deeds and toil. So that word toil, that's a struggle word for me. It's a struggle word because it, it, it leads us to this understanding of just rolling up your sleeves and getting to the nitty gritty. What, what I have pictured, I grew, up on, I grew up on a farm with some cows and everything. And here's what I have pictured. Mom and dad, my parents, when I was in high school, they would go on, uh, on weekend trips. If dad had a conference that he was speaking at or somewhere, he did research for the University of Georgia. How I got to be a Florida fan, we'll have that conversation later. But he had, he'd have conferences somewhere and mom would go with him. And so once I got to where I could drive and I was on, they would leave me at the house by myself, right? And so it never failed, never failed. The cows always waited till dad was four states away to decide at one o'clock in the morning they're going through the fence. Every single time, ne never failed. And not only would they go through the fence when dad was out of town, it would always be when it was raining. And so it never failed that I, as a 16, 17 year old, I'm having to call one of my dad's buddies and saying, hey, can you come help me? The cows are out and we've got to go. And you're tracing through the mud and you're stuck and it's hard work and you're trying to. And then you've got to, you can't just get the cows back in. You've got to fix the fence. Because what's going to happen if you don't fix the fence? They're going to be right back out. And so there you are covered in mud, angry, and you're sitting there and you're cutting, you're getting cut by barbed wire, you can't see, you're trying to pull it tight and you're just trying to get it patched. 
But that's not what's going on in FC. See, see, when I see toil, that's what I think of. I think of just trying to make patchwork because you're bloody and bruised and you're hurt. That's not what's going on. What's going on in Ephesus is all of the great work of the church to make sure that the name of Jesus Christ is going out. It says, I know your hard work and your toil. You are making sure that the gospel goes forward. And he says, guess what? You don't just have hard work. Notice this church. He says, this church was committed to sound doctrine. He says there in this passage of scripture, it's not, that, it's not just your deeds and toil. You can't tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You found them to be false. Man, this, this was the church of the theological dictionary if I've ever seen one. Man, if something didn't sound right about what they're saying, man, they're sniffing it out and they're snuffing it out, man. You're not having, you're not having false teachers thrive in this church. And the problem is, in America, we've lost that. We have false teachers on radio, on TV, and many of us don't even realize that some of what they're teaching is false. See, here, how do you identify a false teacher? You identify a false teacher when something that they say does not line up with what God has revealed in Scripture. Most of the time, they will avoid the subject of hell and judgment. Man, you don't want to tell anybody they're going to hell. That's just rude. Now, you might tell them that when they cut you off on the interstate, but you don't want to tell them actually to their face, right? And when we have prominent teachers and pastors and leaders that from a public platform are willing to say, you know, a loving God doesn't actually send people to hell. That's false teaching. This past week, I read an article about Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. You know, Aaron Rodgers does not believe in the existence of hell. Aaron Rodgers takes his toll, takes his, takes his thoughts on the existence of hell from a prominent American teacher, pastor named Rob Bell, who ten, nine years ago wrote a book called Love Wins. And in his book, Rob Bell, who started off as a true orthodox teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, decided in his heart, in his mind, that God could not actually send anybody to hell because God is love and the attribute of God's love trumps all other attributes. So therefore, God must ultimately save everyone. So Aaron Rodgers doesn't believe that there's a hell. The problem with that is the love of God is what fueled the gospel of Jesus Christ that sent his son to the cross for us. But it's the holiness of God that says you must have my standard of righteousness if you're going to endure and enter into the heaven that I have created. And the church at Ephesus says you're coming in with something that's not right and we're sniffing it out and we're eliminating it. And Jesus says, good job, let me pat you on the back. Man, I pray every day for our church. I pray every day for our church. And one of my leading prayers for this church is that we would be a church of the Bereans. See, if you go over to the book of Acts, Paul's teaching and in, 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 in planting churches all across. And he comes to this city called Berea. And in Berea, he's preaching the word and he's telling about Christ Jesus. And it says that the Bereans listened intently to what he said, but they didn't just take it at face value. It says that the Bereans would go home and search the scriptures to make sure that what he said was true. And I pray every day that we would be that kind of discerning church. Oh, Evan said that from the pulpit. It must be true. No, no, no. I want it to be true. 
But don't just take it because it came from my lips. Take it because you've searched out the scripture. That's what the church of Ephesus is doing. They're searching the scripture to make sure that what is said is right. Because believe it or not, theology matters. Believe it or not, the things that we say in conversation reveal something about our theology, whether it is an overarching belief or it is just in that moment what we say betrays something in our heart. And what we say about our church actually demonstrates to the world what we believe about our God. Statements that we make about church that are to the negative ultimately tell the world around us that our God is powerless to fix our church. Never thought about it that way, have we? The things that we say about those that we are in fellowship with actually reveal something about our doctrine of salvation and redemption, what we believe about the brokenness of man and the holiness of Christ and the church of Ephesus is doing everything they can to make sure that sound doctrine goes forward in everything. Then the third thing Jesus noticed about them is that they were committed to holding on. In verse 3 it says, You have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake. Some of you barely got through 2019. Some of you were just thinking, okay, I'm holding on. 2020 will be here. Let me just get through. Some of you were playing the old Merle Haggard song. If we just make it through December, we'll be fine. And that was your mantra for about three or four weeks there to the end. Man, sometimes life gets hard. Sometimes life gets difficult, but Paul, uh, John is not addressing through the mouth of Christ Jesus right here that life was a little difficult. He is talking about these are people that are putting to the, being put to the fire because they believe in the name of Christ. They're holding on when everyone else is letting go. And you know what? Some of you have been through that. Your friends, your family, those that are around you, people that you used to know that sat on these pews with you have walked away. It's not that they just left the church. They not, not just left our church. They've left the church. They're not going anywhere. They, they, have, they have walked away. And what they're saying is, well, I still believe in God, but I don't believe his church is important. And the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, you guys are holding on. You are enduring for the sake of my name. They are holding on. And realistically, some of it is a life or death decision. It's a life or death decision whether or not they're going to hang on to what, what Christ Jesus has offered. Because if they hang on, they're at risk of being physically put to death. Did you know that right now, right now, in so many countries around the world, your brothers and sisters in Christ are holding on with the very real prospect that it's all they have. They, they don't have this joy and luxury of a nice sanctuary where their pastor can stand up and boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the dead, the, the one who died and rose again, that we have the opportunity to offer justice and peace in this world because of the peace that Christ, that surpasses all understanding in us. Man, the whole idea of going to a church service is like a pipe dream for so many Christians around the world because if their mom even knew they had a Bible, if their uncle even knew that they were a Christian, they would be brought before the town council and put to death probably by their own family. I mean, they're hanging on. And I don't want to discredit anyone in this room because that's not our experience. 
I don't want to discredit the, the struggle that you have because you do know what it's like when faith seems to wear thin and you're wondering where God's hand is going to come through. Jesus says, I am holding you up and applauding you because you are holding on. Everybody else is letting go. You're that kid at P.E., you're that kid at PE when it's tug of war day. Do they still do tug of war at school? Surely they do. I know it's like people get hurt playing tug of war. But you're that kid at tug of war. You realize that the other guys over there, they're cheating a little bit. They put on cleats and they weren't supposed to wear cleats for tug of war day at PE. But they got on cleats. And not only they got, not only they got cleats, they got like the biggest kids in your grade on their team. And so all they got to do is just kind of hunker down like this and they're going nowhere. But you know what? It doesn't matter how deep the pit is. You're going to hold on to that rope and you're going to try your hardest, even though it's burning your hands, even though everything, everybody else on your team's let go and you're you're about to be drugged on your face. You're going to hold on. That's what the gospel asks us to do. Hold on. Amen. Jesus says, man, you're doing some great things. There's a toll. You're not putting up with false teachers and you are holding on with everything you have. But then Jesus makes note of the great problem at Ephesus. Man, a church that's got all these great things going on. There's not any problems there, Right? This is all good, man. They're putting to death. They're putting to an end to false teachers. They're holding on with everything they got. Man, they are busting it, man. They are leading their convention. They're leading their association in baptisms and outreach. They're about the biggest, best VBS. All these stats that we like to count as churches, they are leading in those. But Jesus says, I've got an issue with you. Could there be any more terrifying words to utter to you than Jesus saying, I have this problem with you? Oh, man. Th think about the openness of your prayer life that you would have to have in order to say, you know, we approach prayer this way. Lord, I love you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for my house. Thank you for my food. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my friends. I got this uncle that broke his leg. I got this problem coming up at work. I got this going on. Lord, I just ask that you would take care of all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. I prayed it in Jesus' name, so it's going to happen. We're good. You go about your day, right? That's how we approach prayer, right? Man, what, what if we said, Jesus, I love you enough. And I'm just going to sit here for a minute, and I'm not going to drop any requests because you already know them all. I just want you to look at my heart and tell me where the problems are. Wow. It's like going to the mechanic and they put that little diagnostic thing. You're like, how much is this going to cost me, right? Jesus puts that diagnostic to your heart. That's what's going on in Ephesus. Man, I've got all these great things I want to praise you for, Ephesus. You're doing a great job. But I have an issue. I have a big issue. And he says there in verse 4, I have this against you. You have left your first love. There, there, I've read several commentaries. I've heard several sermons on this passage of Scripture. If you were with me uh, during the Ephesians series when we got to this, you know where I'm going to go here. Um, there are a lot of speculations and ideas of what this first love might have been. Um, a love for the community, a love for evangelism, a love... But see, Jesus is applauding them for what they're doing. I believe and I am convinced in my heart that what the problem at Ephesus was that they forgot to love Jesus first. They forgot to love Jesus first. They were doing all of the right things, but for the wrong reason. 
They, they made church more about having the full calendar, the full schedule, maintaining this ministry, making sure we have did this because it's what we've always done. I mean, th- think about Ephesus, man. They'd only been doing things for like 30 years, you know, 35 years. So it's what we've always done. Well, you only have one generation to look back against. You know, you get into a church like ours where we're coming up on 200 years and we start asking those same questions. Well, should we shift from this or should we do this? And the question comes back to, well, this is what we've always done. Well, we, got to, we have to have that. And I'm not up here saying we're getting rid of anything. Don't, don't hear that. Here's what I am saying. We've got to evaluate why it's happening. Because what happened in Ephesus was, man, they were knocking out these false teachers because they weren't lining up with the gospel. But it wasn't because they loved Jesus first. It's because they loved this idea of a solid truth statement first. Oh, man, they were working hard, man. They were filling the nursery. They were on visitation. They were all the toil and the labor and the endurance. Church was happening each and every day, not because they loved Jesus first, but maybe because they loved their church. See, there's a big difference between loving your church and loving Jesus. And when we start to love the church more than we love the Savior, what we start doing is trying to uphold the name of the church and not the name of the Savior, and everything else will just fall. We might as well take the name First Baptist Church Fairburn off and say, hey, Good Society Club of Fairburn, or you you name it whatever you want to name it. Good Works Club, Keep You Busy Club, Fill Up Your Calendar Club. And that's we're good at that, right? And he says, Hey, I want you to know that I love all the things you're doing, but you don't love me first. Wait, 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 I love Jesus. So did the church of Ephesus. But not first. You remember the second commandment? I'm going to submit to you that the biggest problem with the church in America is not what we decide about abortion or same-sex marriage. It's not what we decide about what Sunday we do communion. It's not, it's not, it's, it's none of that. It's that we forgot the second commandment. The second commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally what the Hebrew says is, you shall have no other gods in the face of me. And, and, and I want to I back out of that just a little bit because we're, we're prone to think of ordering priorities, right? Okay, God's number one, ch- family's number two, church is number three, work. No, no, no. What it's like, it's God and nothing else. Like, like it, it's the Lord God. It's not the church. It's not your wife. It's not your kids. All of these things are good. And Jesus never says, don't love them. Don't, don't, don't take care of them. The scripture speaks a whole lot about taking care of all these things. But what's happened, I believe, in too many, and and it starts in the pastor's home, okay? In too many churches, in too many places in our country, we have not put God on the throne of our heart. We have not put the love of Christ Jesus first and foremost, and we've allowed other things that are good to take that first step, that first place. And too many times it's happened to the church. I believe that's why it is a very good thing that over 750 Southern Baptist congregations have been indicted in the last year for covering up sexual abuse. 
because the name of the church went more important than the name of Christ Jesus and the cover-up happened. Too many churches hold on to the name of the church and things become more important in the church than reaching the community with the gospel because we're not loving people, because we're not loving Christ, because we're loving other things more. And Jesus says, I do all these great things. That's wonderful. I love that you're doing this. But, but come back. Come back. Because not only had Ephesus forgotten their first to love Jesus first, Ephesus was in danger. Look what happens there. He says there in verse 5. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent. Do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and I am removing your lampstand. If the whole purpose of the church is to be a light of the community and Christ Jesus says, I'm going to come to you and snuff out the light, then what purpose is the church? You lose everything. I'm tired of driving around Atlanta. I'm tired of driving around Fairburn. I'm tired of driving around Georgia. I'm tired of driving around our nation and seeing for sale signs in front of churches. I'm tired of it. If you drive from here to Douglasville, you're going to pass three churches that are for sale. What happened? Something became more important than Christ Jesus. Social justice is important, but it's not more important than loving Christ. Having a church nursery is important, but it's not more important than having Christ. Being, being, a, being whatever you want to call us is important. But if we don't have the love of Christ fueling everything we do, we're going to get it wrong. And Christ Jesus already says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take away the lampstand. Maybe it's no surprise to you that where this church once thrived, where this church once flourished, right there in Ephesus, Right there in, in, in the ruins of Ephesus, what's in its place are some of the world's most grandly designed Islamic mosques. Churches that didn't love Christ first. Maybe you've been on 14th Street in Atlanta. On the west side of 7585 Connector, the Georgia Tech campus side. If you're driving down 14th Street there in downtown Atlanta, coming from the Varsity and coming across, right there on your left is going to be a beautiful, very, very beautiful mosque. The, 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 the architecture, the, the structure itself is a very beautiful very beautiful building. Sitting on property that in 1965 was a Southern Baptist church. This isn't a Middle Eastern thing. This is an us thing. 
This isn't a Ephesus was a couple of thousand years ago thing. This is a, it's happening under our watch. It's happening in our lifetime. It's happening right now that unless we get back to what is important and loving Christ Jesus first and throwing everything else to the wayside and submitting it to who Christ Jesus is, we're going to miss out. And guess what could be sitting right here in the next generation? A temple dedicated to a false God. That's right. So how do we avoid that? How do we avoid that happening to us? Because make no mistake, we're people. I am human. I, I, I am actually physically here. I was born. I have two parents. I am here. I feel things. I need food. I need air. I need water. Just like you guys do. So was Ephesus. Ephesus. So was the church that used to sit on 14th Street in downtown Atlanta. So how do we avoid that? How do we go beyond? Look at what Jesus says in this passage of Scripture. He starts off four words that I want to make sure we highlight. Four words here. He says there in verse 5, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. He tells us first that we've got to stay committed. We've got to remember where everything started. We get back to the gospel. We get back to the love of Christ. And we remember what the focus of everything we're doing is. So we're doing the right things for the right reasons. We start asking ourselves the question, okay, why are we doing midweek study? Is it because, well, we need to have something midweek? No, it's because we love Christ Jesus enough that we want our children, our students, and our adults, and our choir to be prepared to speak the gospel into the lives of people because we love Christ that much. Okay, why are we going to do a trunk or treat? Is so that the kids have an alternative? No, it's because it gives us an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. Why are we going to try to get into our, our local elementary and middle school and high schools with, the good, with, with, with service and in the community? Is it because we just need another project to keep us busy? I'm sure all of you have stuff around your house that will keep you busy. No, it's because there are people that are broken at Bear Creek Middle School, at Renaissance Middle School, at Renaissance Elementary School, at West Elementary School, at Campbell Elementary School, at Creekside High School, at Landmark Christian School. Yes, even the Christian school has broken people. That unless we say we're going to take the love of Christ and put the love of Christ first, then we're going to go there and we're going to do, we're going to stay committed to what all of this is about. Why am I going to expose false teaching? You just say, look at me, I'm the right teacher. They're the wrong teacher. No, it's because we love Jesus. It's got to come back to the commitment to Christ Jesus first. The second is that we have to seek truth. Notice he says there in this passage of Scripture, remember from where you have fallen and repent. I love that he uses the word repent. See, we think of repentance as, um, you know, quit murdering people and start being a preacher, right? That, that, that's what we like to think of. We like to think of quit, quit, uh, quit looking, uh, quit, quit being this ridiculously horrible, miserable person that is so evil and vile and wicked that nobody wants to be around you and now all of a sudden be a holy roller. That, that's maybe a sign of repentance. But repentance is, hey, quit being a religious person and follow Christ. Quit, quit throwing all of the, 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 the great church nuances out there and come back to the gospel. Come back to what is true. See, repentance is a statement of truth. 
Because repentance is a demonstration that you and I see the gospel for what it is, see ourselves for who we are, and we're going to walk towards truth no matter what the cost is. Believe me, as the pastor of a church, this is a scary step. Because when we repent, we always, and we start moving towards truth and seeking out what is actually true, we run the risk of offending people. We run the risk of losing people. This church has already experienced that. This church believes that it is right for all people of all nations, of all socioeconomic backgrounds, of all ethnic backgrounds to worship together as one. Why? Because there's only one cross, there's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And that is true. And you know what? We lost people because of it. Some of you that have come from different ethnic backgrounds have maybe lost a trust connection with people at a former church because you're worshiping in a different context. But what we see is how the gospel brings all this together. And imagine with me, just man, you know I'm a dreamer. You know I love to, to imagine and think big picture. Imagine with me, if we put that on display for the love of Christ Jesus all over, we're seeking truth and we're coming back to what is real and what is right here in the forefront of the gospel. And that is men and women, families united because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Seek truth. He says, remember all these things, repent, run back to the cross with it. But he also tells us to prepare your heart. Notice in verse 7 he says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I know you're looking at the outline and so, man, Evan, you have up here on this screen for us, prepare your heart. But the words you just read said, clean out your ears, right? Well, Cleaning out your ears doesn't fit quite as nicely up there. I mean, it would, but it just doesn't. doesn't. Over in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, Isaiah sees this beautiful picture of worship taking place in heaven. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high on the throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Around his throne were the, were the, were the cherubim. Two wings they used to fly, two they used to cover their face, and two they covered their feet. And each one of them all day was calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I saw this and I realized I was a man of unclean lips. I was unworthy to be there. And the angel took the, took the burning tongs, took the tongs and took the burning coal and put it to my lips. And I heard the Lord say, who will go for us and who will I send? And I said, here am I, Lord, send me. And then God says, okay, you're going to go and you're going to preach to these people, but they're not going to hear. Jesus demonstrates this in Matthew. If you're, the, if you're reading along with our New Testament in 2020, this morning's passage was Matthew chapter thir uh, 13, verses 1 to 30, the parable of the sower. And he talks about the scattering the seed on the, on, the, on the path and on the rocky soil and on the, the thorny soil and on the good soil. And, and, and the disciples, why do you speak in parables? And he says, because there are people that will hear with their ears, but they're not actually going to hear with their heart. Church, it's time for us to get over listening to stuff because we want it in our ear and our head and let it go to our heart. Amen. 
Jesus says, what I'm speaking to you, church at Ephesus, has everything to do with the condition of your heart. And if your heart is not receiving the word of God, your heart will not be shifted. It will not be changed. It will not be moved. And we will not avoid becoming another church that closes its doors because we didn't love Jesus first. We've got to prepare our heart. And the fourth word he gives us is the word overcome. We've got to embrace victory. That's what Revelation is about. It's about victory. It's about winning. It's about truth. It's about what God has already said. He says in this passage, to him who overcomes who overcomes the sluggishness of the world, who overcomes church as usual, who overcomes upholding the way things have always been, the one who overcomes the status quo, I will give to him the right to do what? Eat of the fruit of the tree of life in the garden. What he is saying is when we embrace victory, we are making a faith stance on the truth of who he is, what he has accomplished for us, and we're saying everything else is because of Christ. Church, let me hear you right quick. Do you love Jesus? Do, do, do you love Jesus? And I'm not saying, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me this I know. I love Jesus. Do, do you love him enough to let him have his way. To put the love of Christ ahead of everything else, even if it costs you something. I shouldn't say that right before we pass the offering plate, but even if it costs you something. Jesus says, all of these things are great, but you want true victory, it comes when you love me first. Because when we love Jesus first, we get to step back and watch Jesus' hand move in ways that we would never be able to do.